0: Welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. In this HCI podcast episode, HCI Research Associate Dr. Leandra Hernandez and her colleagues continue their weekly COVID-19 convo via Facebook Live to discuss all things COVID-19 related.
1: Okay, so I don't know about y'all, but um, right around Easter, we live on a main, like a major high, basically the closest thing to a highway that Spokane has, uh, yeah. like we live right on it. So I can like see sort of the traffic daily.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And it kicked up so much right around Easter. And I'm, we're all gonna. I just think well, I'm not going to say what I, the hyperbolic thing I was going to say. <laughs> I am very concerned about people just like outliving their lives right now? Oh, like yeah. what are you seeing? Oh, there's Pamela. <clears throat> well, if it makes you feel any better, Kari, I think
2: here it seems to be the opposite reaction. I feel like people are just starting to kind of be inside. Mm-hmm. Like I'm today sure I, I went it. for a jog and normally I have to dodge
1: people. And today I saw zero people on my jog. So people must That's be- Yeah, I don't know. I feel like people here just like don't care at all. Really? Not anymore. I mean, for a while it was doing great. And um, so far the hospitals in Spokane are are doing great. Like not nearly as bad as anyone thought. And then it just seems like once they announced that the governor said it, Mm -hmm. then everybody got to Cavalier
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah,
1: And I wanted, I don't know if you have anything, maybe you could speak to that a little bit, Leah, like there's such an interesting problem of like health communication, letting people know that what they're doing isn't pointless, mm-hmm. but then the concern that like telling everybody that things are looking so much better has risks as well.
3: Yeah, it it's kind of a double-edged sword, right? From a, a fear or a hysteria perspective, because on the one hand, Um, it's so important to actually disseminate the information to show that we have progress, treatments are working, social distancing is working, right? But then when that information is co-opted by individuals, either to justify them not following through with the mandates or when it's used by um, more well-intentioned individuals to kind of just say, hey, things are a little bit better now, life can go back to normal. you know, that's when I really start to think about the role of fear appeals and whether or not they work because a lot of persuasion literature and risk and crisis calm literature talks about the pros and the perils of fear appeals, right? Like we don't like being scared into doing things, but then the question just comes down to really how do we frame that to tell people there is progress but not also to say we don't need it anymore, right? And I've been thinking about this a lot within the Texas context and Governor Abbott and a lot of the other politicians coming out and saying we want to reopen the state. And as someone who has family members in small business context, I mean, I'm concerned for their health, I'm concerned for the health of their fellow employees. And then I'm also really concerned for all of the individuals in Houston who are especially angered by Lena Hidalgo's mandate to wear masks. Because now in the city of Houston, if you're seen outside without a mask, you could get fined up to $1,000. So people on a lot of different channels I'm seeing in Houston are losing their minds about that mandate and the fine. And I'm also thinking about um, individuals with mental health concerns or disabilities who may not Understand why they need to wear the mask, and then how that plays out. So that was a really long stream of consciousness.
1: No, to- that was great.
0: <laughs> but this is what I've been thinking about all week. So Leon, if what what is the opposition to a fear appeal? I mean, I, I understand there's a reason based appeal, and that that's not working so well with a lot of folks. In part because there's been a lot of disinformation out there. So yeah. you can't use your reason unless you have some facts to exercise it on. Um, but the appeals from you know protect your fellow man, you know this sort of altruistic appeal, doesn't seem to have quite the same legs. Yeah, <laughs> as yeah, the fear
3: Yeah. So it's so like on the one hand, we we think about so many campaigns that have used fear feel, fear appeals effectively, right? Like um, mm-hmm. a lot of the anti-smoking campaigns that show individuals with uh, mm-hmm. tracheotomies, or they show mm-hmm. black lungs. But I I think one of the, the concerns with fear appeals in a COVID context is that, like what kind of images do you use in that moment to stimulate that fear appeal? Is it an individual in a body bag? Is it an individual in a hospital room or a respirator? Um, and really at the end of the day, I think what's competing here with the feel appeal is really the individualistic call to arms, if you will, right, for individuals yeah. to not be limited or regulated and certainly not fined
2: yeah i wonder i'm i was thinking about what appeals seem like they work the best on people and sometimes it's like social media reinforcement but it it's so for some groups that's a thing right like people I mean, I'll admit it for myself. I was sewing masks and I posted that I was sewing masks because I wanted all the positive reinforcement from my friends. Yeah, because yeah. they're I mean, <laughs> could Mail them to them. But you know, there's a, there's always that element of like, oh, I want people to tell me I'm doing a good job. And, you know, I think in my social media circle that's something I'm gonna get lots of reinforcement for or showing yourself, you know, a pick a selfie where you're out with your mask on and your gloves or whatever, like, yeah. but in some social media circle, some people's social media circles saying, you know, my right, my body, my rights or something <laughs> <laughs> Weird co-optation of that yeah.
1: rhetoric.
3: I, really, I was just gonna, just really, um, really, um, really,
1: um, circle back to, science communication, Um, I've been doing a lot of work with um, an engineering team out of the University of Nebraska on trying to increase public awareness of antibiotic resistance. And so we've done a lot of research in science communication more in Leah's field for that. And a lot of the studies we've been looking at suggest that scientific literacy is not the problem. So when we like scream like, but the data, but the data, but the data at people, Actually, most people in this day and age are surprisingly scientifically literate and instead Hmm. What we found is that people are social and they're going to pick the things that reinforce Group bonds that they already have so if the people around them if they get that positive reinforcement from saying you're not going to infringe on my rights That's Hmm. what they're going to do the evidence isn't the question
0: Yeah. And and the confirmation bias of cherry picking evidence as well, especially when there's conflicting facts, you know, being spread. Yeah.
3: There's, there's so many um, risk crisis persuasion theories that have that strong social norms component, right? Because Kari, I think you nailed it. Individuals are brilliant. They're smart. They know how to read this information from all of these different outlets. But I think what's, the most significant factor as we're starting to see play out is maybe not necessarily the information literacy but more so the norm like the social normative function right like i'm wearing masks because i know they're important but more so because my mom mailed me like 10 of them right, right. and <laughs>
1: girl legit the other day I was driving out to get something and I called my mom just cuz I missed her I don't know if she's watching but yeah. she was like where's your mask and I wasn't going to do it that day and I know better but like I just didn't want to wear the mask and then she like told me to do it so I did it exactly, <laughs> exactly. thanks mom
0: <laughs> I wonder what would you know if it's if it's around if it's about identity you know, given where we are in the trajectory of the kind of, you know, yelling from one side to the other, is there a way to design, for example, a campaign which would tie identity, identity on the right wing to, say, wearing masks? Yeah. Like your flag a- mask. Your Second Amendment mask, your, you know, hopefully like right. a white peaked hat mask, but, you know, I mean, <laughs> something. Yeah.
2: <laughs> That's what I was thinking about that there's this weird complication in this. And I, it's, I mean, it just feels like this whole, whole sort of um, like galaxy of elements came together to create the situation where caring about public health is, is tied to the left wing.
0: Mm-hmm. But
2: I don't think that that's always been true. I mean, there's lots of, we can think of lots of historical epidemics where it goes the other way, right? Like there's not, it's not necessarily true, but in this case now, so many of these terms, even like social distancing, for example, I think, has started to have a partisan ring to it. Yeah. And I think there's probably people who are hesitant to do things because they don't want to get kickback from people on their social media networks or in their families or, you know, people who are in communities or social groups that are primarily right wing um, yeah. identified. They might Actually, hesitate even if they were persuaded. You know, even if they actually wanted to wear a mask, maybe they're not wearing a mask because of that. You know, I mean,
1: yeah. I'm working on that paper I told you all about for American literature, and I did a big study. Well, a big study. I did a lot of reading last week about American versus British uh, receptions of germ theory, and there's sort of a narrative that America was later to the game. And that's apparently not true, but I read some really compelling arguments that America was different in the uses to which it put germ theory. In so far as exactly as you say, Jen, even if the British were doing this with a paternalistic attitude towards the poor, they were still dealing with disease as social infrastructure problems That the government needed to take a role in whereas according to this author Charles Allen McCoy he's um, at SUNY Plattsburgh I think Um, he said that America was always more of a militaristic model of medical discourse and I don't know what Lorenzo would say about that I think he would say that the British did that too but that they always tended more towards individualistic practices, such mm-hmm. as neoliberal mandates, like it's on you to be clean and yeah, quarantine, yeah. such as we saw with Typhoid Mary, Mary Mallon. Mm-hmm. I wonder what you guys think about that. I found it very interesting and I've been chewing on the idea. Yeah. Of course, none of us, well, you, Pamela and Jen and I were all British scholars, but we are Americans. So <laughs> we're allowed to talk about both, right? That's true. <laughs> Don't tell any no. American that they said
3: that. <laughs> yeah. now, y'all know I think about culture and identity way too much, right? Way too much. And I, like, Kari, I think your point and Jen's point go together so well when we think about it along um, political lines, but also cultural lines, right? Like I'm, even now, after so many years of being in health communication, I still keep trying to rectify how all of these pieces put together at a larger Public health perspective, right? It's like the the idea of social distancing shouldn't be seen as a partisan issue, but it's kind of evolved as such, right? Um, it shouldn't necessarily perhaps be seen as a racial, ethnic health disparities issue, but it's absolutely evolving as such, particularly in a lot of the memes we've been seeing on Facebook about what sort of body can wear a mask without fear of, um, mm-hmm. you know, all sorts of problematic things. And then also, what sorts of bodies are the bodies that are doing the labor? Um, and um, there, there was also a different set of memes I saw playing out this week in terms of protesting. So, like protesting as a, as an American right, a citizen right, also a sometimes militarized action or right, um, and the types of bodies that can do these protests without mm-hmm. again the fear of um, mm-hmm. some sort of problematic retribution. So I don't know if that necessarily answered your question, but that's what I thought of with both of y'all's thoughts together. Mm
2: -hmm. Well, the other thing I've been thinking about, actually, Pamela, you've written a book about this. Um, (laughs) What have
1: Pamela written a book about?
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I was thinking about the cholera in um, the religion stuff with cholera. Mm -hmm. Um, when I was seeing, because I saw this interview, I'm sure many of you saw this interview of this woman saying, you know, coming out of church and she's being interviewed by a reporter and he's like,
0: no, no, <laughs> <laughs> you know, how
2: would you risk this? And she's like, I'm club, I'm covered in the blood of Christ. I'm covered in the blood of Christ. Like, as if that means you can't get sick. Um, and which my quite religious parents disputed
1: the theological basis of um but I just can't not think of bloodborne pathogens when somebody says that. <laughs> yeah, like, think of all the things you'd be opening
2: yourself up to, Don't yourself in anyone's blood. <laughs> um, but I was just thinking about the. Um, I mean, because if I recall correctly, there was a. Some people tried to read cholera as a religious. Condemnation, right? And like, you we weren't mm-hmm. supposed to do any public health because it was, it was sort of a a judgment from God. And, right. and I, but I don't remember exactly because I'm just trying to recall reading the book that you wrote. So I'll <laughs> read Pamela. Right.
0: Well, I mean, it you know, not not everyone thought this, of course, but there was a small sort of wing of of folks who said this is clearly a judgment from God. And immediately attached that to all the uh, to all the political things that they didn't like like who mm-hmm. thought about recognizing Catholics in Parliament judgment of God <laughs> yeah. you know uh, people you know people were outside enjoying themselves on the Sabbath judgment of God right mm-hmm. um, so and of course at the same time in France they were saying oh it's because we've moved away from the Catholic Church so you know, it's a perfect example of people saying it that the epidemic operates in some completely different way in our country than it does everywhere else. Right. Like those places, it may not be. But in our in our country, it's moving away from Protestantism. So God is apparently very selective about how these things things work out. Um, But, you know, what's what's kind of most interesting about that is that, you, you know, you're in a you're in a time at the beginning of the century where you know the the church really speaks for the nation. You have a state church, an established church, and doctors are really private individuals, and health is a private matter. Yeah. And through the medium of this of of the cholera epidemics, I argue, um, you know, basically over the period from 1832 through the 1850s, doctors move into being um, public figures with a public health mandate who can speak for this, what is now conceived of as a political and national concern, Mm -hmm. which was not earlier. I was thinking about, you know, because I realized as we were talking about this the other day, I think you may have seen this on on Facebook, um, Carrie or on Twitter, it was like, I've never really studied virology because viruses are really not a thing in the 19th century and the period that I most focused on. And so, you know, I was kind of asking some really basic questions. And then I thought, okay, so, you know, germ theory, the great age of germ theory, sort of the late 19th century, and then virology, you know, really, it it starts to be sort of discovered in the late 19th century, but it really comes into its own with the electron microscope. But we really turn toward a, like, there are germs and we should kill them, kill the germ. The germ is bad, kill the germ. Mm -hmm. And that leads me back, Jen, to what you were saying about, you know, having this kind of us and them attitude toward pathogens, when of course pathogens have been with us for a really long time. And reading some of the virology, I mean that there are viruses that cause illnesses, but also have protective effects. Mm-hmm. And I thought about the way that um, you know, under, under uh, earlier models of medicine, when someone was sick, you said, oh, there's an imbalance, we're gonna strengthen the body. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we discovered germs and we're like, oh no, the problem is this germ. And we're going to kill the thing. And if we kill it inside your body, and we have to kill you to do it, hey, <laughs> then it breaks. But actually, we're finally now turning again toward an idea of that we are, you know, a system, and it's about strengthening the system and not about like isolating and killing the one thing in the ecology that isn't right. And immunotherapy really kind of returns us in some ways to an an earlier way of thinking about the body. Oh,
1: that's so smart. (laughs) I love that. I I have nothing to add, it's just awesome.
0: (laughs) all the lost opportunities for thinking about immunotherapy you know back when they discovered that um oh hey if people get erysipelas that will sometimes cure their their lymphoma right Mm -hmm. and then oh x-rays shiny object and so we never followed that out and we lost 80 years (laughs) or whatever it was 70. i just heard someone
2: i'm going to see if i can find the name of the person um talking about this on the podcast Um, This Week in Virology, Mm. um, which is a great podcast, if you haven't listened to it. Um, Oh, just released a new episode, so I'll be listening to that later. (laughs) Um, But, uh, can I click on this? Okay, Kostya Chumakov is the person who was um, talking about it, but he was talking about the differences... Um, between different types of polio vaccines mm-hmm. and basically putting forth a theory that a particular type of polio vaccine, and I'm not going to get the details mm-hmm. of this right because I don't know that much about virology, but um, it was something to do with the difference between like attenuating the virus. It's called OPV, but I don't know. I guess it's just oral polio vaccine, um, but it uses the different method. And I think it's, it's like it's the difference between Attenuated virus, or like, you know, you know, I don't know the difference between different types of vaccines. But it was stimulating some kind of immune response. His hypothesis is that it's stimulating a kind of immune response that actually um, is protective against other types, other diseases besides polio, um, and that they were seeing lower rates of other other viruses among people who were getting that type of polio vaccine, which is mostly used was mostly used in the USSR. And it's still in Russia, I believe, compared to people who were getting a newer type of vaccine, which had been seen as safer because it was like farther away from giving someone the actual virus, mm-hmm. but it, um, maybe didn't have this kind of bonus effect, you know? So it's making me think about just like the way that the body operates with this really complex ecology. And when we do one thing, we don't know, we don't always know all the things. Like we can't precision locate uh, mm-hmm. a germ and kill it most of the time. I guess um, mm-hmm. we're always kind of adding and subtracting, and there is still this level of balance. That even though we like to make fun of, you know, humorology, <laughs> like the humors and mm-hmm. um, that that way of thinking about the body, it actually isn't. At least metaphorically, it still works for us.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs>
1: Mm -hmm. Well, and one thing I often tell my students in medical humanities courses is if we just assume that every way that we're viewing things, every epistemology is obviously right and everything that's come before us or exists in different geographical spaces. Is yeah. backwards, then we're prone to the errors that we can now see in the past. So, right. only by saying that this could be something at play, can we pr- protect better against those oversights. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: But then that gets back to the whole problem of communication. Um, of you know, how do you? It's it's a lot harder to convince someone or to get grant money <laughs> or whatnot when you say this could be a factor right um, this is the answer right
3: yeah and you don't know what you don't know yet right and i think Mm -hmm. that's yeah that's so much of the uncertainty at the public level now because we know like hey social distancing is working and all of these other Preventative and reactive measures are working, but then you see discourses playing out about vaccines and funding and where the vaccines are coming from. And I remember seeing articles not too long ago about how um, some of the tests and the vaccines that came out of the CDC were infected. And then that that one article, which is such a smaller subset of this massively large discourse about coronavirus, then just spirals out of control with it went viral. <laughs> And the hypocrisy and everything else. And I think what we're seeing here, in addition to all of these other factors, is really um, uncertainty management,
0: working or not working, and then spiraling, right? Right. One of the most terrifying things, I think, about the virus is that, you know, even though so many people have died from it, we really don't have a handle on... What the actual um, effects are, right? We're now seeing people talking about blood clots, and we're seeing, you know, amputations and kidney damage, and you know, it's it's hard Uh to to have it. And then there are all these asymptomatic people. And what's up with that? (laughs) I don't need a mask. I don't have the symptoms. It doesn't matter. I can do what I want. Right. But also, I mean. They're asymptomatic, but they're infected. So, does that mean that they will have damage later on down the line, even though, or does it mean they're not? You know, yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
2: Well, I don't know. We don't know. Yeah, it is. I mean, it's so hard to, it makes it very easy for people who are trying to downplay or discredit science, yes. science in general. Um, when, yeah, <laughs> there is this degree of uncertainty and there aren't certain answers, and people do have to keep revising
0: as we go. Right. When one week it's like, far. we need, we need, you know, ventilators, and the next week it's like, oh no, we need dialysis. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And just, I think, again, this, I just keep returning to this idea that, and I include myself in this statement that, especially in America, we're not, we're, shockingly not used to the idea that we can't just, the things we want or need won't just be available. Mm-hmm. Um Like, I mean, I kind of, I think I fell into this a bit earlier on where there were some people that were like, cool, like, well, we'll get a vaccine. And even I had to like, be like, oh wait, like you can't just have yeah, a vaccine. Work. Like yeah. humans have to make it and, and test, test it. it. <laughs> Yeah. And I've even heard that with ventilators, you know, some of the conversations have been like, okay, we'll get ventilators. And as you say, that's not really the discourse anymore. But then I heard one person eventually say like, you can't just have a ventilator. You've got to have like oxygen taps and you've got to have a type of bed that it like these things yeah. don't mm-hmm. just pop out of nowhere. And it just, I feel like I keep getting called out by circumstances that show me that I fall victim to that yeah. thinking as well.
0: Right, right. I mean, especially with things that we think of as being really quotidian and easy and insignificant, like swabs. Who right. knew that swabs would be the weak link for right. so many tests? But swabs have to be made somewhere. And it turns out most of them are made in Italy. Well, <laughs> I know. And you think, well, we've got cotton. We've got sticks. How hard can it be? Yeah. <laughs> kind of injury, yeah. yeah. <laughs>
2: Well, speaking of big ecologies, big ecological systems that are more complex than we always are capable of grasping, the the global economy is one of them. We don't know all the factors. Absolutely.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And the global labor chains that make things possible. Yeah. Um, and you know, the the political moment is so much militating against making those easy already. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, I'm seeing in Britain now that they're bringing in people from Eastern Europe to harvest their crops right after Brexit and no more freedom of <laughs> movement. And, and of course, we're in the same situation and that most yeah. of the people who who, you know, who provide us with food are, you know, our guest workers. Yeah. You know? Um, And, you know, we're really seeing disruptions along the food chain. You know, um, restaurants are closed, so people are plowing their crops back into the field. That's happening all over Florida. Um, You know, we're going to see meat shortages because all of these meat plants are now having to close because, you know, finally, after enough people die, it gets embarrassing. Um, I had not heard about meat
1: plants closing.
0: closing. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Out in Iowa, I think in Nebraska, they've had to close some because, you know, people work very close together in these places and it's very fast paced work. And so once the sickness gets in, it just kind of tears through oh. um, these meat packing plants. But, um, you know, the flip side of this is that, we, you know, a, a piece just came out in the New York Times about how there's going to be world hunger. There's going to be starvation all over the world in the wake of this. There was already, you know, a lot of places already had food insecurity, but this is creating a huge crisis. This and the various wars that people are pursuing, and um, you were plowing, you know, we're plowing squash back into the field because we don't have restaurants to buy it. I mean, the whole thing is a little, it's a little crazy. Yeah, yeah.
2: it's always been our problem is food distribution, not food production. Yeah, 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 it is.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, Malthus did not see this aspect of it Yeah,
2: <laughs> yeah we've been doing this, this sort of been a um, little project in my house is that we have, somebody created an app for our county um, where restaurants and, and stores that have leftover food can post it on the app, and then you can volunteer to go pick it up and bring it. To, that's good, good. so. Um, a sort of local level redistribution, but yeah. at the at the global level, yeah, it's more
0: complicated. And if yeah. the restaurants stop being able to get their supplies, then that's not going to happen anymore. Yeah, yeah, nobody's going to be able to take these restaurant supplies to Syria, for example. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. but very- but yeah, we could certainly be doing more. I think Publix just said that they are going to try to um, purchase some of these farmers' products and give them to food banks. So that's huge. Yeah, that's great.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's scary to think about the long term effects of this. And I almost feel like I can't quite think about it yet.
3: Mm -hmm. Mm
2: -hmm. Me either. I'm still in acute crisis mode. And then eventually, I guess we can. I'm sure some people are thinking about it, but um, (laughs) I haven't been yet.
0: Yeah, and I- yeah, again, it's kind of weird because we're we're in acute crisis mode, but as it as it stretches on, yeah. and especially for those of us who are in communities that have not been hit quite as hard yet, so we're not again, we're not visibly seeing it. It's not you know yeah. in our families. Yeah, um, it's sort of hard to wrap one's head around that kind of crisis, and often you know you see calls to altruism being very effective. Right during and immediately after a crisis yeah. once they stretch on, that becomes less effective. Leanne, you must see that you must you know have a lot of material on that yeah
3: and I, I think it's interesting too to think about related factors um like patience and degrees of separation right like I think immediately before and immediately after, you don't necessarily have to worry so much about publics being impatient because you're in the throes of that moment. But um, as we're in this for a few months, several months, I mean, longer than that, we just don't know yet. I think that's when the patience and the autonomy and the individual rights. And I mean, really... Mm -hmm individuals just lack of willingness to deal with it anymore and i can't necessarily say that i blame them right this is a really rough time um so i understand the logic there but then when it comes down to the campaign perspective i think it goes from reshifting to try and find those more effective messages that i think are going to get at those populations who are pretty much at their wit's end like Mm -hmm. those who are just ready for it to be over with Mm -hmm it's like, okay, we're wearing day. masks. Masks are kind of a no- novel idea, right? So individuals are wearing masks for a week, two weeks, three weeks, but then it becomes a mandate and then you end up having to wear a mask for let's say somewhere along the line of six months. Like will the the science behind it still be enough to get people to follow through with the mandate? Will the altruism at that point still be enough to get individuals to follow through with it? Or do you have to shift gears communicatively altogether at that point?
0: Yeah. I mean, masks have had, you know, have been sort of successfully adopted as winter flu season wear every year yeah. in lots of Asian countries. And I can mm-hmm. see, you know, as as cute masks come out, you know, with identity sites on them, I could see people getting sort of more used to that because that's an inconvenience. It's not mm-hmm. a kind of life altering inconvenience. Yeah. But if we had to quarantine again,
1: yeah, that would be harder.
0: Mm mm-hmm. mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. I don't know you that know, we could achieve it to 100%. think about the global unprecedentedness of the entire world basically being on lockdown. I just that's been my fear when I've seen more and more people out locally. I feel like I'm surprised that we had one shot to get everyone to stay home. And I don't know that we'll get another shot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Have, have any of you heard
0: anything about um all courses at your universities? Do you think they're still thinking about it? We're going to find out in in uh, July. Yeah. How About you? We haven't heard yet. I yeah, they're still
2: considering the options.
0: Yeah. But we're online through the entire summer, and the summer, the summer schedule was pushed back a week. I mean, you can see they're sort of desperately playing for time, yeah. but
2: we've they've only called it for the first two summer sessions they're still waiting on the last summer session and the fall but yeah. i've heard from yeah. a lot of students feeling alarm at the idea of not going back in the fall in real life mm-hmm. um, yeah. but it does seem likely that we won't you know it's i don't know it's hard to yeah
3: it's it's shocking to have the reality set in that this likely will not be
2: fixed by then right yeah and it's hard to think yeah i mean it would certainly be a justifiable decision by the university to to
0: oh yeah go all all remote for fall but i mean if this thing is still circulating you know at the same levels i don't necessarily want to be around 70 Eighteen to twenty-two year olds that have come that have just arrived from all over the place. Mm. <laughs> yeah.
2: And I mean, maybe by then we'll have more serology, and maybe we'll have some some ability to see if to know if we had it already or something. Yeah. You know, I mean, I just yeah, I don't know. And but we're not that even that's effective, so you know, we don't even know if you get sustained immunity from having it. So right. I don't know. I guess I'm just going to have to figure out how to use Blackboard Ultra. <laughs> <Ugh. Yeah. laughs> Probably the safest bet for now. <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, we'll see. I mean, again, we're, you know, with all the inconvenience, we're in the lucky situation that there are Absolutely. things that we can still do. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Well, Amy says, "I am." Amy Whitaker says, "I am hopeful for antibody tests." Me too.
1: That is, um, Amy is a biochemist, so even though she doesn't study this, I feel like maybe she knows better than us. I want to believe that. In that that. case,
0: her hopefulness really gives me hope. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, I'm
2: hopeful too because at least maybe then you know, in certain people, could have some level of. Safety or some level of comfort going back into
1: work situations.
0: But.
1: Yeah. 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 All right. Well, we're pushing 40 minutes and I've got another meeting coming up. So, any yeah. final thoughts? Or are we, were those them? Those so were them. It's great to see you all.
0: Yeah. yeah
1: <laughs> this is really, ever since Pamela, it's you said this do. is like the grounding point of your week, yeah. especially as we've gotten farther into quarantine. It's helped yeah. me because I have increasingly lost my sense of time and space. Yeah. So to yeah. have this in my Thursday, yeah. it's been yeah. really nice. Yeah. But yeah. Same here.
0: <laughs> All right. Thanks again, yeah, guys. Thanks for again. All
1: right. Bye. Bye. Take care, everyone.
2: Bye.